It's the hilarious world of depression. Adventures in Therapy Edition. I'm John Moe. Talk therapy is one of the most common ways people use to treat depression, and it can be really effective. But it's not some kind of miracle cure. You don't walk out of your first session, or maybe even your 50th, clicking your heels up and announcing that all your problems have been solved. Now, it's a lot messier and generally a lot more gradual than that. And that's because it's humans talking to humans about difficult things like the human mind. Trying to figure out an issue you're having can open up a whole new issue that's causing it. Sometimes a quest for answers leads to just a ton more questions. And sometimes two people together just don't click. Or what a therapist brings to the relationship doesn't mix with what the patient brings. Now, at that point, a lot of people figure, hey, screw this. Therapy is stupid. It's all a scam. I'm giving up. We're here to say, don't do that. Don't give up. Keep trying. Finding the right match is a process. But you can also think of it as an adventure. So today, with the help of our listeners, we are bringing you short stories of some of those adventures. And yeah, some of the stories are of brief therapy relationships that didn't work out at all. Hey, John, this is Erica Chambers from Boulder, Colorado. I went to a therapist after my sister passed away and I was already dealing with depression and now I was dealing with grief on top of that. And I really wanted to just go to a therapist to find some coping strategies so I could continue to work, which I needed to do to live, you know? And so I went to a therapist through my employee assistance program and it was this random guy in a office building that smelled like Goodwill and there was a boombox playing 70s music in this little closet that I guess was supposed to be a reception area. Um, but I walked in and there was nothing on his walls except a clock, an Elvis clock with just his pelvis going back and forth with the second hand and it was so loud and distracting. And when I asked the guy you know, for coping strategies, just ways to kind of get through my work day. He freaked out and he said, um, coping strategies, I don't think you understand how much you've lost. I don't think you understand how profound this is. I mean, every holiday, every Christmas, every Thanksgiving, every Easter, you're going to be thinking about your sister on her birthday. I mean, this is terrible. This is going to affect the rest of your life, even on Flag Day. And... <laughs> Like, he brought up Flag Day, which at the time I didn't even realize was a real holiday. Um, so I left crying, but now every Flag Day I laugh because it's, I mean, you know, you gotta laugh. It's just one more day to grieve uh, on a day I didn't even know existed. So thank you, therapist, for that. Sometimes an unexpected guest can be a very big help. Yes, it can. Oh, yes, it can. This is Kat from Atlanta, Georgia. My therapist aha moment what happened when I was in college. After seeing a couple therapists on and off through student health, I finally got sent to a private practice so someone could see me for more than six weeks. When I called to make my first appointment at the first therapist on my list, the last thing she said to me after setting up the appointment was, 
oh, on Thursdays, I bring my golden retriever to the office. If that's a problem for you, let me know and I'll keep her home. I spent every Thursday for the next eight months sitting on the floor with Skylar as we worked through my general anxiety, depression, and family issues. And then when my class schedule changed for my last semester, Skylar, Skylar's schedule changed too. She started coming on Tuesdays to see me. Skylar wasn't a trained therapy dog, just a goofy golden with a pure heart, very soft fur, and a very amazing therapist as an owner. Seven years later, I still haven't found another therapist team as amazing as Missy and Skylar. Don't underestimate how purely therapeutic it can be to have a living thing that loves you devoutly and unconditionally and who always exists in the moment, fearing neither the past nor the future, even though they do poop on the rug sometimes. Still, on balance, yay dogs. Chris got some good insight in therapy. It just wasn't the kind he was expecting. This is Chris Lundy from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I had a therapist in college, uh, a grad student who was getting practicum hours. And they started our second session by saying, why don't you just admit that you're gay? There's nothing wrong with it, except for the fact that I went for homesickness, not my existential struggle with my sexuality. Though I denied it at the time, it turns out that she was right. Oops. Therapy is about two people trying to understand each other. And sometimes it works out even if the patient doesn't even read the same comic strips as the therapist. Hi, my name is Jerry Hainfeld. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota. Finding that perfect therapist requires... Opening up to a complete stranger about all of your thoughts and feelings. That's pretty scary when you have anxiety to begin with. It's especially hard when you've already tried doing that and haven't really found a good connection with someone else. But I'm here to say it's so worth it to just keep trying. I finally found someone who asks all the right questions to make me think differently about things in my life. It is a little weird when he compares the 1980s, 90s Dilbert cartoon to my work life. I don't get it. <laughs> I usually smile and nod and quickly change the subject. Um, I can kind of overlook that weirdness because I do see him as a very good friend, a good friend that does get paid to be super supportive and very non-judgmental to me. But I look forward to every visit and that makes it worthwhile. It's funny, when we first thought about this show, the idea was to ask for your worst therapy stories, biggest disasters. But the more we worked on it, the more we realized that the therapist-patient connection is very nuanced. It's layered, sometimes confounding. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we heard from therapists who elaborated on that. My name is Aleka Kosturas, and I'm a clinical social worker and psychotherapist living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In defense of us therapists, the therapeutic relationship is a complicated one. And while there are definitely some bad therapists out there, and many who used to be good but are now burned out, bored, or going through their own shit, 
a lot of times we get blamed or criticized somewhat unfairly for things that are just as much about the client. We're used to it, though. It comes with the territory. And while it's our job to try not to let our personal stuff influence the therapy, remember that we are humans, too. Sometimes we have off days, don't feel well, make mistakes, say the wrong thing, are still learning, etc. Nobody's perfect, not even your therapist. Luckily, we don't need to be in order to be helpful. But a good therapist is one that's open to hearing if something isn't working for you or makes you uncomfortable, and then exploring, explaining, adapting, and or referring. In fact, it's essential to the therapeutic relationship for the client to be able to voice when something doesn't feel right. This can be uncomfortable, though, so oftentimes people just blame the therapist and end the therapy to avoid it. How the therapist responds to you is what's more important, unless, of course, the violation is egregious or ongoing. So speak up. It might even be an opportunity to work through some of your own stuff. I've noticed that when the old therapy sesh really goes haywire in some of these stories, the patients tend to end that relationship, stop seeing that therapist. For instance, I doubt Chrissy, coming up here, stuck it out with hers. Hi, my name is Chrissy Dickinson, and I live in Plano, Texas. I was very lucky to find the perfect therapist for me on my first try when I was 29 years old. I saw her, I'll call her Therapist A, weekly for a year and a half during which she helped me deal with the death of my mother at a young age and my father's terminal illness, as well as many, many other issues. Her and her husband's side business became very successful, and when she couldn't devote enough of her energy to her clients, she very lovingly and intentionally transitioned me to another therapist. I'll call her Therapist B. My experiences could not have been more like night and day. I knew more about Therapist B's life in one session than I knew about Therapist A's after a year and a half of seeing her. Therapist B had a rocky relationship with her annoying husband. She hated meal prepping. She was in the process of losing a ton of weight. And when I tried to share my frustrations with struggling to lose weight, she immediately recommended a doctor to me that would prescribe me weight loss meds instead of actually dealing with any of my emotions. At one point, I remember sitting on the couch, pouring my heart out about my weight issues and dealing with my own self-worth when Therapist B interrupted me to say, Oh my gosh, I know what you mean. I can't even look at my wedding pictures because of how fat I was. Like, seriously, how did I have friends back then? She then proceeded to come sit on the couch next to me and show me all of her Facebook photos of her wedding day where she continued to berate and belittle herself based on her weight and what she looked like for over five minutes. And that is my worst therapy story. Ruth Arnold lives in Skokie, Illinois. She had an awkward moment with a therapist but it was her 15-year-old son's therapist. And the awkward happened when neither the therapist nor her son were around. The way the sessions worked is he would usually spend most of the session alone with a therapist, and I'd be sitting outside reading. And then often toward the end of the session, I would be called in for kind of a wrap-up. I'm a widow, so I do look at dating apps, and uh, I happened to be on Bumble, which is your typical swipe left, swipe right thing. 
And as I was swiping one night because I was bored, um, yeah, yeah, his therapist's profile and picture appeared, which was already awkward, but of course I could not tell my son. So then I read the bio and it was really not helpful because it just made me feel more awkward. So basically every session after that, that I was called into, I could not look him in the eye or process much of what he was saying. Cause I was obsessing about the fact that we were both on Bumble and I thought, Oh my God, if I've seen his picture, he's probably seen mine. And that's basically all I could process during the rest of my son's sessions. Ruth told me that in those in-person meetings, she and the therapist kept trying to move one another to the side using only their thumbs. That's not really true. She never said that. My name is Denisha Artis, and I'm from Buffalo, New York. I have a therapy horror story I would like to relate to you guys. Uh, I decided to do some therapy over the phone, you know, due to my schedule and everything. And I made it a point to tell my therapist that I'm a black woman. You know, I found that was pertinent since, you know, that is who I am. And I made it clear that... All the things that were going on in the world today were not really helping my anxiety. And the thing that the, that my therapist said, she told me to just ignore it. Honestly, that had to have been the absolute worst thing to say to somebody who is experiencing anxiety due to all the mess that's going on in the world right now. So I guess she thought it was a good idea to deny part of myself just so I can function. Life doesn't work that way. Hi, my name is Kelly and I live in Rhode Island. When I was a college student, I had started therapy at um, school after my mom had passed away. Um, when I went home for the summer, I needed to be monitored because I'd been put on some medication uh, to help me sleep and cope with um, the depression and anxiety. Um, the first place that I went was a local hospital, and I was referred to a social worker there. Um, at our first session, I explained the trauma I had experienced and the grief and PTSD, depression, and insomnia that had led me to therapy and needing help uh, with medications to manage those. And her response was, do you think your mother would want you to feel like this? I'm pretty sure she'd want you to be happy. Um, I remember being silent for a few minutes and then responding something like my mom's mom passed away when my mom was about six so I'm pretty sure my mom would understand that I'm having a hard time right now um but she kept on with this um and eventually I walked out 
The U.S. Department of Labor estimates there are around 552,000 mental health professionals in the United States. So to paraphrase Chumba Wumba, sometimes when you get knocked down, you must get up again, like Jenny did. I am Jenny Reschke, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Shortly after moving back to the Twin Cities area, I had reached out to a mental health professional referral line. My preferences in a therapist were pretty simple and numbered just two. I preferred a female with lots of experience dealing with some pretty serious anxiety and panic issues. My result was a lovely but more anxious than I was young man who had just finished grad school. I was literally his very first client without supervision, and I spent more time reassuring him that he was doing a good job than I did talking about why I was there in the first place. Needless to say, I never went back. I reluctantly tried again a short time later, this time on the advice of a friend. That also went poorly, though not nearly as bad as the first time. After that, I wasn't willing to give it another go for about two years. Third time's the charm, though, as they say, since I've been seeing that therapist weekly for over a year now. The whole thing was a bit serendipitous, actually. He was another referral from a friend, one that I initially ignored. But then one day, I was walking beside the park in my neighborhood, and I felt happy. And I knew that more than anything else in the world, I wanted to stay that way. So I decided it was time to try doing something about it again. And when I got home, I contacted my friend and asked for this guy's name, then promptly looked him up on Google Maps. Turns out he's in my neighborhood, about two blocks away from my apartment, right along the route I had taken home that day when I decided I really did want and deserve happiness. Okay, my turn. The first therapist I ever saw, I was still in junior high and having some big problems. And at our very first appointment, he told me and my mother that he was actually leaving town, moving to Boston, just about to go. So he was sorry for the confusion, but he wouldn't be able to do any other appointments past this one appointment. I went in anyway. I talked as much as I could, as fast as I could, and I tried to resolve my entire mental state in an hour. It didn't work very well. I've had better luck as an adult, a few really good professionals, some where there just was no spark, no major disasters. And then there was the time a few years back when I felt like I was heading for a real head-shaking, what-have-I-done catastrophe, and things changed. I had been struggling with a traumatic memory, one of those see-it-every-time-you-close-your-eyes, can't-sleep-at-night things over something that had happened some years before. And I heard about this thing called EMDR. stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. I didn't know that acronym at the time. I just heard there was this weird thing called EMDR that works for trauma. All I knew is that it involved your eyes. I figured... That's probably what the E was for, and that it really worked. 
Now, I knew that if I thought too much about it, I would talk myself out of trying it because that's Clint D, you know. Depression, given the chance, would tell me to just sit there and suffer instead, that I didn't, I didn't deserve a new treatment. I didn't, uh, I didn't deserve to try something new to try to get better. I didn't deserve to get better. And so I knew the depression was going to do that, and I just jumped forward. I said, nope, I am going to try this, whatever it is. I made an appointment with a therapist that I'd worked with before, who I liked, and who is a practitioner of EMDR, and she explained that it's all about using eye movements to reprogram your thought patterns as they relate to, in my case, a single traumatic event. There are many ways to conduct one of these sessions, she explained, but she likes to use these pulsers, these like hand buzzers, little electronic dealies, one in each of my hands. And to really make it work, I would need several sessions in a row. And I went home and I thought, hand buzzers? Several days? This sounds like dog training. But at that point, I was also really curious to see just how ridiculous this thing was, because I had already decided this is ridiculous, but I hadn't ruled out doing it anyway. And I was thinking, like, are there going to be crystals? A strobe light? Would a gong be involved at any point? And it felt like, well, this is going to be a big time commitment for a funny story I could share later. But you know what? What the hell? So I went. I, I kind of went sarcastically to this appointment. Now, EMDR has its critics. Some people say it's pseudoscience, that positive results are speculative, that's a rehash of other treatments. And of course, no matter what, it doesn't work for everyone because nothing works for everyone. We always say, try things out and see what works for you. It's also very possible with EMDR that people who get positive results get them because their mind wants to get some positive results. And I don't know if you'd characterize that as scientific or not, but it seems to work for them. For me, my sarcasm and eye-rolling didn't last very far, even into the first session. It was really soon apparent that this was super effective for this one specific horrible thing I was dealing with. I didn't alter my regular depression treatments during or as a result of EMDR. I just used it for this one thing. And after the sessions were done, I was completely exhausted. I slept and slept, but I felt worlds better. I don't get how hand pulsers made my PTSD better. I've read about it. I've tried to figure it out. I still don't understand it. And while it was great to feel great and to have that trauma addressed in a great way, part of me was kind of sad because I did really lose out on a good chance to make fun of something. So, hey, listen, keep your mind open, be skeptical, and if your first therapist or therapy doesn't work out well, keep trying, keep adventuring, and find what or who works for you. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help, and that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. 
Now, that could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to Make It Okay. Thanks so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. A big thanks to all of our sponsors for this program. You know, a lot of times with our sponsors, you might hear me give something like a promotional code to use. Use promo code hilarious or promo code world, that kind of thing. I want to point out when you use those, you get great deals and it helps us because then the sponsors see that you're using them and that you're listening and then they're happy and then they want to sponsor us some more. So using those codes, you get deals and then you're kind of voting for the show and it really helps us out. So thank you. Back with more Adventures in Therapy. You know, a lot of adventures have unanswered questions. Like, take Star Wars, for instance. Obi-Wan Kenobi is trying to hide baby Luke from Darth Vader. So why did he stick Luke on Vader's home planet with Luke's aunt and uncle and have him keep the last name Skywalker? Wouldn't Darth Vader only need, like, the phone book to find him? And if you know the answer to that, please do not email me. I don't want to hear from you. I like the mystery. My point is, adventures often have mysteries, like what happened to Laurel Baldwin from Bellingham, Washington. I've been coping with depression issues for some time, and when I initially went shopping around for a therapist, I had this very odd experience. A friend had recommended uh, someone to me because, as he so enthusiastically put it, she had a degree. This is what not what I considered a sole reason or a ringing endorsement, but I was shopping at the time, and in good faith, I made an appointment to see her. So when I stepped into her office, she motioned for me to sit down, but she made almost no eye contact with me, and that was my first red flag. She sat at a small desk across from me, typing into a laptop, and she began asking me in the sort of low, droning voice these general intake questions about my history. She would peer down through her glasses with her chin sort of jutted upward and her lower lip kind of sticking out and slowly typing in my answers on her laptop, still not looking at me. I thought, okay, this is weird and more red flags. So then she asked me about my general mood. How had I been feeling lately on a scale of one to 10? I replied that I was at around a five to a six at that time. And then she looked right at me and she stopped typing. And I thought, finally, eye contact. And she asked me a question. She said, are you serious? Are you making a joke? I said I was serious because I was. Uh, she considered my answer for a second and shook her head in kind of disbelief and simply said, geez. And she went back to her typing and the session ended. So to this day, I still am not quite sure what her juice meant because I never asked her and I never went back. And I really wondered who might benefit from her particular therapeutic style, but I knew that it wasn't me. And decision-making can sometimes be challenging for me. So I decided that this therapist had made it super easy for me to make a therapy choice that day. And I decided to just appreciate that. Learning lessons about what you don't need is as important as learning lessons about what you do need. Now, we don't mean to say that all therapists are jerks, but Stacy means to say that, and she's a therapist. 
Hi, my name is Stacy McCall, and I am a therapist at a community mental health center here in Kansas City, Missouri, who provides a therapy called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, or DBT for short. One of our consultation agreements as part of providing this therapy is the fallibility agreement, or what we also like to call all therapists are jerks. What this means is we are agreeing ahead of time that we are each going to make mistakes, and we are agreeing that we have probably either done whatever problematic things we're being accused of, or some part of it, so that we can let go of assuming a defensive stance to prove our virtue or competence. Basically what this means is that I'm going to make mistakes as a therapist. I'm not going to be perfect, and I'm sometimes going to say or do the wrong things. I'm not gonna be there for my clients when they need me or when they call or when they want. And if I am able to let go of this defensiveness about whatever they're accusing me of, then I can step a foot into their side of it and try to find a synthesis, not necessarily agreeing that one position is right or wrong, but finding an area where we can see both sides and honor both of them. For example, an easy one that I get quite often is my clients cannot get a hold of me on the phone. Part of that being is that I am providing therapy throughout the day and I'm not always able to step away from that client to answer a phone call immediately. So what I want to do is get very defensive and say, well, of course I'm not going to interrupt another session to answer your phone call. Why would I ever do that? And also that response is not going to be helpful to the therapeutic relationship at all. That person's probably going to decide I'm a jerk and not come back and see me. So what I have done is I'm able to see their side of it is yes, oftentimes when people call, they're not able to get a hold of me and they have to leave a message and how frustrating that must be. And I will call you back as soon as I can if you leave me that message. If I own up to what I say I'm gonna do, generally that has a better outcome. And what I have taught that person is that we're all human, we're all gonna make mistakes. And then what do we do about those when we make those mistakes? How can we own up to them and problem solve them a little bit? So. Basically, all therapists are jerks, just like most humans, and that's okay. Hi, my name is Ellen, and I live in the upper Midwest, and my story about finding a therapist is that therapists are surprisingly not weirded out if someone else calls and asks about making an appointment for you. One of my mentors did this for me when I had to bail on what was supposed to be a year-long research trip. She called a therapist she knew, explained the situation, asked if the therapist would be willing to do a phone consult before I was back in town, and then emailed me all the details. I never would have called on my own, but my mentor had already done all the executive level stuff, so all I had to do was follow orders, more or less. A few years ago, I did the same thing for a friend in a completely different part of the country who was grieving the loss of a partner. After a little bit of research, I called someone who specialized in grief counseling and left a message, something along the lines of, I know this is weird, but I'm calling on behalf of a friend in the area who needs help, and I'm wondering if you're taking new clients. The therapist called back, told me it wasn't weird at all, asked a lot of questions, and then told me to have my friend call her. My friend called her pretty much immediately and ended up seeing her for about a year or so. This isn't entirely foolproof. Uh, the person doing the choosing and making the appointment for you has to be someone you trust and who knows you well enough that they can make a reasonable judgment about fit, but there are enough credible resources that they don't need to be cold calling total random people that they found by Googling alone. 
The other catch is that the therapist can't directly contact the person you're making the appointment for, so that person has to be willing to follow up on their own. But calling a therapist and saying, hi, I'm Joe, my friend Tom just talked to you about me, is so much easier than admitting to yourself first that you need a therapist, then doing the research, then calling around, then making the appointment for yourself, and then getting yourself there, etc. If someone else makes the introduction for you, you get the added bonus of someone whose job it is to be objective, telling you, your friend obviously cares about you very much, and that's always nice to hear. And then there's Travis. And Travis, oh man, Travis. Here's Travis. Hi, I'm Travis Bird, and I'm from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. When I was in college, my cousin and best friend of 20 years was killed in a car accident. I had already been depressed for at least four years, and this really kicked me while I was down. I wondered if I wanted to even keep living and felt worthless and insignificant. On the recommendation of a friend, I went to see a therapist on campus, and we set up a weekly session. The first meeting went okay, but the second just seemed to rehash the first. At the third meeting, I walked into my therapist's office, and she gave me a puzzled look and said, I'm sorry, who are you? I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm Travis, your three o'clock appointment. She then said, and what are you here for? And I paused for a second and said, well, among other things, I've been feeling pretty insignificant. And at that point, I felt it was best to just turn around and walk back out. That was several years ago now, and I can laugh about it. But at the time, knowing that I had been forgotten by the person who was supposed to help me gain some sense of self-worth, that was pretty brutal. So I hope you've been enjoying these adventures. And honestly, thank you, therapists, for all the work you're doing. And thank you, human beings, for doing all you're doing, trying to connect with all the other human beings. That's what we believe in as well. Thanks for trying and goofing up and trying again. My name is Laurel, and I live in Seattle, Washington. I stopped seeing my last therapist for a few reasons, but one of the main ones is that I never quite felt a human connection because she always kept a really stoic face and tight body posture. But I just started with a new therapist, and I'm really hopeful about her. On my first visit, she greeted me at her door, and as I followed her into her office, I noticed her dress was accidentally tucked up into her underwear. I let her know, and we both started laughing. The authenticity and humor from that initial interaction led to a really quick sense of trust and connection, and that lasted throughout the whole session. I'm looking forward to my future visits with her. Today's lesson, people are human. If therapy doesn't feel right, try another therapist or another type of therapy. Just don't give up. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media dignitary. Kate Moose is executive producer. Recording engineers this time around are actual listeners and their phones. Technical direction by Michael DeMarc. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. 
It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation on that topic can be awkward. Make It Okay has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at makeitokay.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. Just search for us. You'll find us. And come visit us on Facebook, too. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow thwadballs. We're dreaming up new shows. We're getting contributions from listeners. Cool stuff. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode. Okay. I need a place, a profession, and an oddly therapeutic performance medium. Depression and improv. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Something I don't know